Amen. Grab your seats. It's good to be together with you. Uh, saying hello to everyone online. I want to say hello to everyone in Mesa, South Mountain, Fountain Hills, our chapel services. We got church family all over the place. Uh, and if you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. Hey, church, can we just welcome our guests today? Let them know you're, wel you're welcome here. We're glad to see you. Uh, I want to let you all know that today we're starting life group signups for the next session of life groups. So go on your church app. If you're new to our church and you don't have the app downloaded on your phone, you got to get the app, sign up for a life group. It's like the Cheesecake Factory menu. There's a million life groups to choose from, actually like 200 something. And I think it'll be really helpful for you. I strongly encourage you to be a part of a life group. Strongly encourage you. If you are saying, hey, there's not a life group close to where I live, here's your sign. Maybe you're supposed to start one. Because there's probably other people near you who need a life group as well. And I know sometimes it can feel like a little bit of a sacrifice. Or for some of you, it can feel awkward to go and put yourself around a new group of people if you don't know a lot of people yet. But that's the best way to fix that. You're not going to make friends at your new church family uh, unless you put yourself out there and take a risk. Unless you take the effort uh, to get in relationship. And can I just put everyone at ease? When you go to life group, everyone else is just as nervous as you are okay they're all thinking the same thing like will these people like me will they accept me will they will they love me when they realize how messed up I am the answer is yes yes they will uh, we all need community if you believe that say amen. amen we're starting a study in the book of Exodus today and at our church we study the Bible because it's the inerrant infallible word of God in 2nd Timothy 3:16 says all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness all scripture is inspired by God and it was penned by men over the span of hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, but it was all inspired by God, the true author of scripture, and it's all useful for us, even the parts that seem boring, like the genealogies and the weird parts of Leviticus. Let's just be honest, come on, some parts are a little harder to read, and it's not all equally practical, but it is all useful. Amen. And so I don't preach sermons at this church based on my ideas or opinions about how the world should be. God's word is the guide for our lives. And as we apply it to our lives, it pleases God and we are blessed. So in this series, you might learn some things you didn't know before. I hope you do. Um, I've learned some things I didn't know before. But I don't want you to walk away from this series talking about how you know, helpful a sermon was or how amazing a sermon was. I want you to come away thinking God's word is so amazing. And I want you to realize it's actually not that hard to understand the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't understand the Bible at all because your minds and your eyes are spiritually blind and dark. Um, but with the Holy Spirit's help, he reveals, that's why we get the word revelation, he reveals the truth of God's word to you. But the Holy Spirit will not help you understand the scriptures you never read. So you got to read the Bible, amen? The Jews divide the Old Testament into three parts. There's the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law is the Torah. We're going to study that. The prophets, uh, books written by prophets like Isaiah, and the writings are other historical and poetic uh, works like Job, Proverbs, Nehemiah. 
Um, uh, and then when we read Exodus, uh, the word Exodus means to journey out or departure. This is part of the law or the Torah, the Jews call it, sometimes called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five scrolls, five scrolls. It was written by Moses around the 15th century BC, and the book of Exodus takes place over a span of time, approximately 85 years, so about one lifetime, a fairly long time. Um, in Exodus, you're going to learn so much about God and who he is. We see that God is a saving God. He saves Moses from death in a basket. He saves the firstborn sons of the Hebrew people as they apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts in the Passover. He saves all of the people from Pharaoh as they cross through the Red Sea. He's a saving God. Amen. And then you also say he's a God of fiery holiness. You know that the Bible describes God as love just a few times. But it describes God as holy over 400 times. And today, a lot of people love to talk about love, but they don't like to talk about God's holiness. Yet God's holiness is what the Bible emphasizes to us. We see his fiery holiness in the burning bush, in the pillar of fire. And even when he consumes Aaron's sons in fire, when they violate his holiness, it's intense. We're going to talk about it. Uh, and then you also see he's a present God. He's not a far off distant God, he's a present God. He meets with Moses in a bush. He meets with Moses and the elders on the mountain and he meets with the priests in the tabernacle. The word tabernacle means to dwell and that's where God's presence dwelt among the Jewish people. Uh, as Christians, we believe that when Jesus came to earth, he tabernacled with humanity. God came to be with us, present, in our time of trouble. And now as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit tabernacling inside of us. He dwells inside of us. So we have God's presence with us. The first scroll or first book of the Bible is Genesis. And it answers a lot of questions about our origins. Like where do we come from? How do we get here? And as you read Genesis, you quickly learn that God made everything. He created us. He created us perfect. But we chose to sin, and we, as humankind, issue, we, um, we brought sin and death and sickness and pain and suffering into the world. That wasn't God's plan. But God quickly, rather than wiping us out, made a plan to redeem us. He's a redeeming God, isn't he? And that was just the first three chapters of Genesis. Towards the end of Genesis, we read the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And out of jealousy, his brother sold him into slavery. And he was carried off to Egypt as a slave. In Egypt, he was falsely accused and thrown in jail. In spite of that, God raises him up to a place of power and influence, second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Now, from this position of power, God uses Joseph to prepare Egypt for seven years of famine. Okay, it's a powerful story, amazing story. Um, and so Joseph leads the effort to store up grain, and the Egyptians survived the seven years of famine, but not just the Egyptians survived. Joseph's own family, the same family that sold him into slavery and turned their backs on him, moved to Egypt from Canaan two years into the, family, uh, the famine, and Joseph's dad comes with his 11 brothers, 
And Joseph was able to provide for them and their families with food to survive. And this literally saves their lives. This is where we hear that verse. And you've probably heard this sentiment before. In Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You've heard it said, right? What the enemy meant for evil, God will use for good. That's where we get this from, right here. Um, So what does that remind you of? It reminds me of our father's only beloved son who lived almost 2,000 years later, lived a righteous life, and was also falsely accused, imprisoned, and killed. But just like God raised Joseph up from the pit, God raised Jesus up from the pit and seated him at the right hand of the father. And what was meant for evil, God used for good to bring about that anyone who believes in him would have life everlasting. Jesus becomes the new and greater Joseph, just like Jesus becomes the new and greater Moses. And you're going to see all of scripture ties back to Jesus. It's ultimately all about Jesus, isn't it? Genesis sets up the story of Exodus, which is honestly the main show. It's the main show of the law. It's the main show of the Torah. In Exodus, God rescues his people from slavery, leads them to freedom. In the wilderness, they wander because they wandered from God. God gives them the Ten Commandments, pretty big deal. Uh, they continue to take God for granted and take his goodness for granted, but God is exceedingly merciful and he has plans to restore us from our own foolishness. Uh, Exodus establishes the Jewish faith, which serves as the foundation for the Christian faith. Christians know that Exodus is amazing on its own, but it's even more so when you realize all of it is foreshadowing for Jesus and the good news of what he would accomplish on the cross. Okay, so Genesis ends with Joseph dying, and it picks up in Exodus chapter 1 as a continuation of that thought, and it recaps the sons of Jacob who came to Egypt. It says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. Okay, so I want to point this out. Jacob, who's a big deal, he's one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, Uh, His name means Israel, which also means uh, to struggle with God. Jacob is Israel, which means to struggle with God or to wrestle with God. And I think this is important because it makes it clear from the very beginning that it's okay for God's people to struggle with God. And so I want to ask you right off the bat, are you struggling with God today? Do you struggle with doubt? Are you struggling to trust God's plan for your life? If that's you, welcome home. Are you struggling to obey God's word? If that's you, welcome home. You're in the right place. Oftentimes Christians worry because they struggle with their faith, but you should not worry because you struggle. You should worry when you stop struggling because that means you're dead. And your faith is probably dead if you're not struggling. Uh, God is not scared of your struggle. Every living thing has to struggle to live. 
Chickens have to struggle to hatch from their eggs. Seeds have to struggle to sprout from the ground. A baby has to struggle to get out of the womb. Uh, To live on earth is to struggle. So don't worry about struggling with God. What matters is that you care enough to struggle. In verse 6 it says, In time Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Okay, so they started with 70 people and they multiplied like rabbits and spread. And this mirrors the language of Genesis 128 where God instructs all living creatures to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. It's also the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. You got to see this in Genesis 22. God said to Abraham, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Okay, so see this. God made a promise to Abraham, but it didn't get fulfilled in Abraham's day. Or the days of his children, or of his children's children. Not Joseph's generation, but future, future generations saw the people of God multiply and spread across the land. By the time they came out of Egypt, there was like something around half a million to a million people that came out. Starting with 70 people, these were some fertile myrtles here. They just just multiplied all over the place. And through the line of Abraham, we know came Jesus, Joseph, David, and Jesus. And so I would say if you're in a season of waiting in between the promises of God and the provisions of God, don't give up. Hold on to God's promise until you see his provision. Because God is a promise-keeping God, isn't he? His promises are true. And sometimes, unfortunately, he does not deliver on my timeline. But that doesn't mean that he's not keeping his promise. It just means he has a better plan than I do. Do you believe that? In verse 8, it says this. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who, look at this, knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel, pay attention to that. I'm going to come back to that. The people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join with our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from our country. Okay, so we got to talk about this. It starts to get interesting here. Joseph saved this nation. Okay, second in command only to Pharaoh, literally saved the nation from death. And here's this new king who says, Joseph who? Never heard of him. Isn't it crazy how quickly people forget all that you did to help them? Amen, said every parent of a teenager. Right? See, as humans, we tend to forget the good things others have done for us, but remember the bad things others have done to us. There's probably someone here right now, you've been married for years, you and your husband or you and your wife have been through so much together. He held your hair when you threw up that one time with food poisoning. She birthed your children through 14 hours of labor. You went through tragedy and triumph together. And now, after one rocky season, you're thinking about calling it quits. You're going to give up. 
Like, it's, like, did you forget? Did you forget about all the good, all the good times, all the good he or she did for you? Did you forget how much you prayed for that spouse in the first place? Did you forget you made a vow to God? Don't forget. You should remember. So much of the book of Exodus is about forgetting and remembering. In fact, if you're taking notes, write that down. Forgetting and remembering. Because you're going to see that happen again and again. Pharaoh forgets Joseph. Puts the people in slavery. God remembers the covenant he made to Abraham and rescues the people from slavery. Moses leads the people out from Egypt and urges them to remember this day. God commands the people to remember the Sabbath day. And in order uh, to observe the Passover, they're commanded to have a day of remembrance. But again and again, the people forget. They forget the good things of God. They forget the providence of God. They forget God's mercy. They forget his holiness. And then they struggle. They suffer. They are the textbook example of you got to learn the hard way rather than the easy way. And when I think about the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, I think about it. And it's, it's easy for me to first focus on the 400 years of slavery. And being honest, I'll ask myself, like, really, God? You left your people in slavery for 400 years? I mean, I know you're God, that's not a lot to you, but that's a long time for those people. Could you imagine you're born into slavery and you're praying for deliverance and it doesn't happen? And your grandkids, they don't see it happen? And their grandkids don't see it? I mean, that's a long time for people to pray persistently without seeing the breakthrough that they've been praying for. Amen. Does anybody relate to that feeling of like, God, um, hello, hello, God, am I like calling you on the wrong line or something? Like, where are you? And if I'm being honest, when you think about that, it can cause you to start to wonder about God's goodness. Is he really good? He says he's good, but my situation isn't good. How could a loving God let them be enslaved for so long like that? But I would point out how quickly we forget the goodness of God that brought them to Egypt in the first place. God brought this family to Egypt, the, the family of Jacob or Israel, to feed them in a season of famine. He literally saved their lives through the very son they tried to kill, right? And then he multiplied them. He gave them the best land in Egypt, the land of Goshen. And they grew and they prospered so much as immigrants that they were a threat to the most powerful people in the nation. The only reason they were enslaved in the first place is because they were so blessed by God when they first got there that it threatened the, the power of Pharaoh. So we don't want to be ever like Pharaoh and forget all that God has done for us. Amen? Amen. Don't forget that you prayed for those kids and then turn around and complain that you have to drive a minivan now. Don't forget that you prayed for God to bless your business and then complain that you have to pay more taxes on all that profit. Don't forget you asked God for that bigger house and then turn around and complain that your air conditioning bill is higher. You knew what you were getting yourself into. And see, forgetting God's goodness it will rob you of gratitude. And gratitude is the antidote to grumbling. God does not like grumbling. You're going to see a lot of grumbling in Exodus. 
Now, I want to go back to this part, and this is fascinating to me. It says, look, Pharaoh says, the people of Israel. Notice that verse. Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. That's what Pharaoh said. And so I want to focus in on those words where he said, the people of Israel. Here, Pharaoh uses a rare phrase about the Israelites in Hebrew, it's Ambene Yisrael, which literally means the nation of the children of Israel. These, there are two words in the Hebrew language for nation, the words Am and Goy. Okay, so I want you to understand the difference here. Ambene Yisrael, this is a nation defined by blood ties, but the phrase Goy B'nai Yisrael is a nation defined by beliefs, politics, or ideology. Okay, so when Pharaoh talks about the people of Israel, here he uses the first phrase, Am B'nai Israel, a nation defined by blood ties. And I think this is something that we need to key in on. This is very relevant for us today. Throughout history, blood beliefs have been the cause of great prejudice and great cruelty. The idea that those who aren't part of the right group uh, they end up getting persecuted because they're a threat to those who consider their bloodline to be somehow better or purer, right? We think of Hitler and World War II, things like that. By contrast to what Pharaoh said, God in the Bible does not place much value on blood ties. God in the Bible doesn't even really seem to care about blood connection, one Jewish scholar points out that Jacob is regarded as the third patriarch of the Jewish people, but his own twin brother Esau, who did not share Jacob's religious beliefs, was not even considered a Jew by God's people. Blood did not matter as much as his lack of belief. In Exodus 19:6, God tells the Jew to the Jews to be a holy goy. That second phrase, a holy goy, a holy nation defined by beliefs. He did not say be a holy um, a nation defined by blood or ethnicity. So Judaism and Christianity are very unique. We hold that anybody of any blood can become a Jew or a Christian. Just like the very first Jew, Abraham, who was not born a Jew, but became one later in life through faith. Likewise, centuries later... Ruth was a Moabite woman and becomes a Jew. Subsequently, this non-Jewish woman becomes a Jew, and she becomes the ancestor of Israel's greatest king, David, through whom Jesus descended. Now think of this. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy that he would descend through the line of David, down through Joseph, and Joseph was not even his blood relative. Have you ever stopped to really think about this? Jesus descended, according to prophecy, through Abraham, Joseph, and David. And he fulfilled that prophecy. But according to God, it wasn't even important that he was a blood relative to that lineage. He was adopted. And that was good enough for God the Father. That's a little surprising on the surface. But to God, the heart and the spirit matter more than blood and skin. And so I want to hit on something that can be a little sensitive for some people, but I've, I've had church members say to me, Pastor, you don't know what it's like to walk into church and, and be in the minority and wonder, do I belong here? And I'd say, I, I don't know exactly what that's like, but I know a little what that's like. 
I think about when I was deployed to Iraq. Uh, we had chapel services available on the base where I was stationed on Sundays, and there were some different services available so people could kind of pick what felt best for them. There was like a Catholic mass. I knew I wasn't going to that. There was a uh, boring, right? Any, any of you grew up Catholic, right? So boring. <sighs> you take all the beliefs even off the table. Just church shouldn't be that boring. That's like end of discussion. Then there was the Protestant service, and then there was a gospel service. So first, I went to the Protestant service, and it seemed like a safe choice. Uh, but, you know, every stereotype about white people's music is true. <laughs> to a T. I mean, these were like really nice people, but the music was terrible. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. So then I decided to go to the gospel service because I knew they'd actually have good worship music. And they did. Like, it's crazy, y'all. Uh, the worship team was amazing. The choir was amazing. These were people with full-time jobs, deployed pilots, mechanics, intelligence officers, and they were like professional musicians. The singers were insane. And uh, I grew up playing the drums in church on the worship team, so I was really just digging this. And I go up to the drummer after church, and I was like, man, how is the worship team so good? And he's like, bro, black people don't play with church music. And I said, no, apparently they do not. Like, I didn't even know. I didn't even know I liked gospel music that much. I went home, I ordered uh, the Wow Gospel 2009 CD. That's exactly what a white guy would do, right? But I liked it. Uh, so I know it wasn't always this way, but the army I grew up in was like the least racist place I've ever been. Nobody really cared about that. All they cared about was, did you do your job and do you have my back? That's the way it was, okay? But I would go to this church service and there was like 150 black people and three white guys, one of whom was yours truly. And everyone was super nice and welcoming, but to be honest, when I first went, I was a little nervous. Like no one did anything to make me feel uncomfortable, but I just kind of had this question in my mind like, Am I allowed to be here? I know we're all Christians, but do I belong here? And here's the thing. It's not a sin to ask that question. It's normal for us to feel more comfortable with people who are the most like us. But it's the result of sin that we ever ask that question. See, it shouldn't actually be that way. Because we as Christians have a connection that goes deeper than surface level. Our connection is a soul connection. And the only blood that matters is the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. According to God, it's your belief in Jesus Christ that makes you a child of God. And that is your primary identity. It's not your ethnicity or nation or of origin, your skin color, the party you vote for, the team you root for. Faith in God binds us together eternally. Think about that. We have no choice but to get along with each other because we can't get rid of each other. And there is so much emphasis on surface level connections, who you voted for, skin color, where you were born, the language you grew up speaking. But in the scope of eternity, I have more in common with an elderly Christian Chinese woman than with an American middle-aged white guy who's not a Christian. 
We need to stop letting the world divide what Jesus has already joined together. That's what Pharaoh did. But our family as Christians is not founded on borders or blood or skin color, but based on are you born again? We are joined together by faith regardless of nation, tribe, or tongue. That's what matters to God, faith. Exodus 1.11 says this, So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. And the more alarmed the Egyptians became, so the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. So here we see 400 years of slavery. They're crying out to God, doing manual forced labor with no answer from God. And you imagine they're asking, where is God? They don't get any answer. Just misery. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more God's people multiplied and spread. In America, we've seen an uptick in persecution of Christians. And I think we should fight against that and vote for people who will protect our religious liberty. And we should also try to convert lost people to Christianity. Like, hey, you're not going to beat us, so you might as well join us. But the two most defining events of the book of Exodus are the Israelites being freed from slavery and God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. The nation of Israel was founded on two pillars, the pillars of liberty and morality. Liberty and morality. Outside of Israel... America is the most Bible-based country that was ever founded. And we've got to fight to keep it that way, to get back to that, some would say, uh, for the sake of our kids and our grandkids. But all that being said, don't be shocked if God allows more persecution in the future. Don't be shocked. And also don't think that means the church of Jesus Christ will be destroyed. It will not be because Jesus is building his church. And we know the gates of hell will not prevail. And what you see is that throughout history, God's people thrive in the face of persecution. Christianity kind of reminds me of uh, dandelion flowers. The other day, I was with my daughter, and I picked one of those, you know, kind of dried up dead dandelion flowers for her. And I was like, Lila, watch this. And I blew it. And the little seeds, you know, flew off into the wind. And she, She's like, that's amazing. It's so easy to impress two-year-olds, you know. And so she was like, again, again. That's what she says, again. So I was like, let's do it. You can do it. I picked one for her. Just the act of plucking that flower was violent enough to send, you know, half the seeds flying. And I think Christianity is kind of like that. You know, you, if you try clearing a field of dandelion flowers by plucking them all out by hand, next thing you know, you're going to have twice as many in that field, because the seeds are going to spread. That's what happens with Christianity. You try to stamp us out over here, we're going to spring up over here like whack-a-mole. <laughs> you put us in jail, we're just going to get the guards saved. Yeah. Persecution makes us harder, better, 
faster, stronger, right? You cannot stamp out a wildfire that was lit by the Holy Ghost. People need to realize. Exodus 1.15 says, Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. That's not Pua. or like a Kuna Matata right there. Uh, that's not what it was. Um, when, okay, this is crazy. When you help, Pharaoh says, the Hebrew women, as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. This is the first act of civil disobedience recorded in human history. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? Look what they said. The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Okay, so I want to talk about this. The words Hebrew midwives in Hebrew could mean two things. It could mean either that these were Hebrew women who were midwives, or it could mean they were Egyptian women who were midwives to the Hebrews. And we don't know for sure which one it is, but scholars argue it's actually more likely these were Egyptian women. We know this because of several clues. First, they speak of the Hebrew women in the third person. They say, they are more vigorous. We couldn't get there in time. Uh, it also makes sense, like, why would Pharaoh ask Hebrew women to kill their own people? If you were going to conspire like that, it just doesn't seem as likely to succeed. And then I think this is super interesting. One pro a professor of comparative literature at the Hebrew University noted their excuses translated here as, they are more vigorous or lively, it says in some translations, also can be translated to, to say they are animals or beasts. And I, I read this commentary and I started researching the background of the Hebrew there and it's true. The word there, uh, it says lively, it means lively in Hebrew. And the same root word is used for livestock or beasts of the field. So when these midwives say they are more vigorous or lively... Really what they're saying to Pharaoh is they're playing off of Pharaoh's racist view of the enslaved people. And Pharaoh was more willing to believe that these Hebrew uh, people were like animals. And so he was convinced that, unlike the refined women of Egypt who needed assistance from midwives to give birth, these Hebrew women were like animals and they could just give birth like the animals do, out on the field without needing a system. So ironically, it was Pharaoh's racism that enabled him to accept the midwives' lie. And now how many of you read this story and you hear about the midwives lying to Pharaoh and you immediately think, but I thought it was a sin to lie. Have you ever wondered about that? Well, it is most of the time. But this passage makes it clear that it's not always a sin to lie. I know somebody right now is leaving a negative Google review. Pastor said it's not a sin to lie. 
Just wait, wait before you send me an email. The ninth commandment doesn't actually say thou shalt not lie. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or to say it another way, don't lie in a way that hurts other people. God does not like deception. He doesn't like lying lips, the Bible says. Uh, He doesn't like lying in general. That's definitely true. But this passage also makes it clear it's not always immoral to lie when you're lying to evil people in order to save innocent people. Obviously, we think about just like during World War II, Corey Ten Boom, my wife's reading a book about her now. She was a Christian woman, and she lied to the Nazis to hide and protect the Jewish people from concentration camps. Nazis came around, you got any Jews here? She was like, nope, never seen one. It was a lie. Was it a sin? No, because if she had given over the Jews, they would have been murdered, and that's a greater moral tragedy than lying to an evil person to save an innocent person. It's not a sin. And, and so maybe you're like, well, I don't know if I believe you, Ryan. Like, I don't really know. Well, you can see the proof that God was pleased with the midwives. It says right there that he rewarded them for their actions. And there's not a lot of places in the Bible where God immediately rewards someone for doing good like this. And it's so clear. He rewarded them with good, goodness. And it's interesting to point out. That the Bible doesn't say these midwives saved the babies because they just couldn't bear to harm them. And it doesn't say they saved the babies because they loved babies. It doesn't say that these Hebrew midwives saved the babies because they loved God, even. It says they saved these babies because they feared God. Feared God. It's good to love God, but it's also important to fear God. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the fear of consequences that causes a child to do what's right even before he understands why it's right. And then as that child grows up, he begins to understand why right is right and wrong is wrong. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And these midwives said, we can't kill those babies because we fear God. What will God do if we kill These babies who belong to him. This is an important lesson for us. Fearing God empowers you to stop fearing powerful people. It's the fear of God that gives you courage to stand up to man. Those who feared God saved the Hebrew babies. And, And what you'll learn is those who feared Pharaoh helped to drown the Hebrew babies. So you got to ask yourself this question. Do you fear God more or man? In this first chapter of Exodus, we read about the first heroes of Exodus. And it's not Moses, it's these two women. We don't know the name of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time. And there's partial reasons for that. Maybe because Moses was raised in Egyptian culture. And in Egyptian culture, it was common to intentionally not name your defeated enemies because the Egyptians believed naming someone in death gave them power in the next life. So maybe that influenced this. But more likely, God did not want this hard-hearted, evil Pharaoh to be memorialized throughout all history. He's like, it doesn't matter what your name is, as The Rock says. That was a reference for the Gen Zers right there, millennials. Uh, 
But here we have the names of these two Hebrew nurses, essentially, Shifra and Puah. And to this day, Shifra is a common name amongst Israeli girls and Jewish girls. It's very powerful. Pharaoh defied God, and now he's still suffering today for all eternity, and nobody remembers his name. Whereas these midwives, they feared God, and they're being rewarded for eternity. And today, their names are known by billions of people 3,500 years later. So we know these midwives' names because they were courageous, and they stood up for what was right. You have to ask yourself, are you the type of person who goes with the flow even when you know it's not right just because you're afraid of being rejected by other people or what might happen to you, what your boss might say? Yeah, yeah, you've got to use wisdom in how you, how you interact with the fallen world around you. But do you fear God more than man? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear God, you'll preach the gospel to lost people because you understand the wrath of God is so great and hell is real and you don't want anyone to go there. But if you fear man more than God, you'll only share a watered down politically correct version of the gospel about God's love and you'll leave out God's wrath, which is part of the story. And it's why it's so important to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Because the judgment for sin is horrifying. Our God is a holy God. And then here's the last verse of this passage. The last verse we're going to read. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every uh, newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. So we're going to see in chapter 2 that God delivers one particular boy in a miraculous way. Moses becomes the champion of the Jewish people. And watch this. How timely is this? I didn't plan this. But Moses was born out of a government-sponsored nationwide abortion mandate. 1,500 years later, King Herod ordered all the Jewish baby boys under two years of age to be killed through another Government-sponsored nationwide abortion mandate. But see, God preserved Moses to be the savior of his people. And God preserved Jesus to be the savior of all people. And it goes to show you, no matter how bad things look, God makes a way. No matter how bad things look in the world around us, God will make a way. What the enemy meant for evil, God will use for good and bring it about so that anyone who believes in him and trusts in him will be saved. We need passages like this. And we see the truth of God's word and how it can apply to our lives. And hopefully as we just kind of gather together and journey down this road, studying the book of Exodus on your own, also as a church, I just pray that God will keep revealing truth to you. Um, And I pray that primarily you'll see all throughout the book of Exodus, not just a bunch of cool stories about miracles, but how all of this sets up Jesus to be the savior of the world and allows people to recognize Jesus as the savior of the world. When we look at Jesus, we see there's the answer to my problems. 
It's not found in better systems or government. It's not found in self-help books. It's not found by me getting my act together and being more disciplined. The answer to all my problems ultimately comes down to Jesus, the Savior of the world, God's plan for redemption, the one who saves, Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says your sins are forgiven, they're washed away, God remembers them no more, and you become a part of God's family. You become a child of God. And rather than having to pay the price for your sins, you now get rewarded for the righteousness of Jesus. That's a better deal, isn't it? It's a a good deal. That's why we call it good news. It's like, hey, hey, friends, have you heard the good news? You can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. You don't have to be an enemy of God. You can be a friend of God. You can be a child of God. That's good news for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me today? Bow bow your heads, close your eyes, wherever you're at. And let's just wrap this up. The only way that we can wrap it up. Giving people a chance to be saved. This whole book is about salvation and redemption and freedom. Jesus came to bring salvation and redemption and freedom. And anyone who believes Jesus really is the son of God, the savior of the world, and believes in him for salvation, that means you're saying, I'm going to trust him to save me, not myself. I'm going to trust Jesus to save me. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, the Bible says you will be saved. So if you want to take that step of faith today, This is your moment. Maybe you've been on the fence for a while. Maybe you've been kind of wondering. Maybe you've been seeking answers. Maybe you were almost ready to believe, but you weren't quite sure if you were ready to give up your your sinful ways. Let Let me assure you that Jesus is better than anything sin has to offer. You will not regret. No one has ever regretted trusting in Jesus. And so if that's you today, pray this with me. Say, God... I ask you to save me. Save me from sin. Save me from slavery. Save me from myself. I believe that Jesus saves, that he's the son of God, that he died and rose again. And from this day forward, I'm putting all my hope, all my trust and all my confidence in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna follow Jesus from this day forward and I believe in Jesus, lead me. And I thank you for your love. Amen. Hey, let's keep your heads bowed for a moment. Let's keep your eyes closed. I want to just do this. Wherever you're at, at any of our locations or online, between you and God, I think something powerful happens when you respond physically to the decision you just made inwardly. It helps solidify it in your heart. You you, you realize, yes, that really happened. I remember I made that choice. I responded. So if you just prayed that prayer right now, nobody's going to embarrass you, but just between you and God, just to lock it in and solidify it. Raise your hand up. Just raise your hand up so I can praise, pray for you. That's great. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? So that's me. Just raise your hand up. Oh, at South Mountain, at Fountain Hills. Awesome. I see your hand in the back. That's great. Hey, church, let's stand to our feet and let's give God thanks for salvation. Aren't you grateful? Come on. We're going to worship. We're going to give God praise. Let's do that right now.